Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. From time to time, uh, obviously we're not in the book of James. Well, maybe it's not obvious to you yet, but we're not in the book of James this morning. Um, we will be, Lord willing, this next Sunday, and had every intention of being in James this morning, but due to a conversation that I had a few days ago, and then being uh, awakened in the middle of the night uh, with uh, this, you know, just on my mind, uh, I've learned over the years that, well, you know, that's probably the Lord's prompting that this is really what he wants me to speak about, and it's not that I wasn't prepared for James, you can ask my wife, Uh, so that's not the case. Uh, I mean, we've all heard those guys who come into the pulpit and say, well, I've got something else the Lord put on my heart, and then it's the worst sermon you've ever heard, you know, (laughs) and hopefully this isn't going to be that this morning. (laughs) But this is just what the Lord has put on my heart, Uh, because from time to time I've had people, usually someone new to the church, ask me, you know, what is your vision? You know, what's the vision of this church? And, you know, there are churches who will have Vision Sunday, uh, so they can, you know, cast their vision, get their their vision out before the people. And usually uh, what that means is they're rolling out a new uh, program, a new ministry of some kind, or, uh, you know, something along those lines. And many people think this is very, very important, because Proverbs 29.18 says, where... uh, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But loved ones, that is a very often misunderstood uh, and misused verse. And let me just talk about that verse for a moment. The Hebrew word translated vision consistently in Scripture refers to the visions in which the Old Testament prophets received a revelation from God or a word from God which they in turn then proclaimed to the people. Where there is no vision refers to the absence of an open revelation of the Word of God and the will of God. It is not referring to setting individual goals. It's not referring to rolling out church programs, new ministries, and and goal setting of any kind. Rather, it is a warning about what happens when there is no proclamation of the Word of God and the will of God. God warned the people of Amos' day, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Hosea also speaks of God's people suffering, you know, being destroyed for a lack of knowledge, meaning, of course, a lack of knowledge of God's Word. 
Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we read, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And the word of the Lord was rare. There was a lack of the word, so therefore there was a lack of, of hearing the word. Therefore there was no understanding of the word. And so God raised up the prophet Samuel to meet that need. What Proverbs 28.19 means is that when God's word is not being proclaimed and heard, when it's not known and honored, the people run wild. It does not mean that if there are no plans being made, no goals being set, the people will perish. The Hebrew word translated perish means to cast off restraint. And it literally means to let loose. And, and it can refer to uh, the cutting or unbraiding of one's hair. I mean, today we speak of letting one's hair down as a meta metaphor of a living a wild, undisciplined life. That's what it's referring to. This, this word perish is used twice in Exodus 32.25 to describe the orgy of the Israelites under Aaron's watch as Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's law. So this verse is stating that without the faithful proclamation of the word of God, people abandon themselves to their own sinful ways. You know, they cast off all restraint. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. On the other hand, as the rest of that verse says, keeping or obeying God's law brings happiness. And so the ones who uh, hear the word, the ones who obey the law, that is the word of God, they're the ones who are truly blessed. So the whole idea of, of casting a vision because for lack of vision or lack of programs or, or ministries, the people perish is misguided and, and it's a misapplication of the verse. But to be fair, when most people ask, what is your vision? I mean, what they're really asking is, what, what is this church all about? You know, what, what do you do here? What, what goes on here? And that being the case, the proper question to ask would be, why does this church exist? You know, what's, what's the purpose of this church? And of course, the answer is, for God's glory. For God's glory. We as Christians exist. The local church exists. The universal church exists for the glory of God. I mean, God's purpose in all that he does is to bring honor and glory to himself and to Christ. You see, God's ultimate goal in redeeming men is the praise of his glory. We're not saved and blessed for our own glory, but for God's. He saved us to serve Him, to, to, to praise Him. We are saved to be restored to the intended divine purpose of creation, to bear the image of God and to bring Him greater glory. God's greatest purpose in salvation is for His own sake, in order that in the ages to come, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And that too is obviously for our benefit. But it is first of all for God's because it displays for all eternity the surpassing riches of His grace. 
And the purpose of God for His church reaches beyond itself, beyond the enlightenment of individuals, beyond uh, the church's unity and fellowship, beyond even the church's witness to the world. The church is to be the manifestation to the whole creation of the wisdom and love and grace of God in Christ for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. And since the purpose of the church is the glory of God, then what should the church do when it gathers together? Well, the priority of the church when it gathers corporately is to focus on God, not ourselves. This isn't about us. No, the priority of the church when it gathers corporately is to focus on God and to worship Him. And we can define worship in this very simple way. Worship worship is acknowledging and thanking God for all He is and all He does. I mean, that very simply is worship. Worship is a consuming desire to give to God. And it involves the giving of honor and respect, ourselves, our heart attitudes, and our possessions. And so the starting point of true worship must be the object of worship, the Lord God Himself, who is higher and more significant and far more glorious than life itself. And the greater our appreciation and apprehension of the majesty and glory of of God, the, the greater our reverence, adoration, and service, the greater our worship. For worship to be as glorious as it should be, for it to lift people out of their mundane cares and and fill them with adoration and praise, for it to be the life-changing and life-defining experience that it was designed to be, it must be inspired by by a vision of God that is so great and so glorious that what we call worship will be transformed from a routine gathering into a transcendent meeting with the living God. I mean, people should come away from a worship service with a fresh awareness of the majesty of God and with a desire to glorify God and with a renewed commitment to serve God. And so we gather to worship Him. We are here this morning to worship God. That's our calling, and that is our agenda. And that will be our joy through the ages, but it's also our priority in the here and now. And you and I were saved to be worshipers. We're to be a people who are lost in wonder and love and and praise, you know, just exploding in, in worship to the Lord. So the church, the church exists for the glory of God, and the priority of the church when it gathers is to worship God. And God's plan and purpose through this God-focused worship is to equip and build up His church. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. And so practically speaking, what does that look like or consist of? You know, how is that accomplished? Well, we need only to look to the Word of God, don't we, and and the practices of the early church. 
You see, at the very center of the corporate worship of the church is the Word of God. The Word of God is at the very center of all the church does because it is in the Scriptures that God reveals Himself to us, that Christ is revealed to us. The Word of God is sufficient for all things necessary for man's salvation, his faith, and for all of his life. And the Word of God is, is every truth that we ever require, every warning that we need, and every experience that we would ever need. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in the Word of God. It's all there. It's all in here. And the Word of God gives life, it changes lives. The Word of God teaches us, it teaches us truth, it brings correction by confronting sin, rebuking false teaching. It corrects our sinful behavior. It trains us in righteousness. It trains and teaches us how to live. It is our spiritual nourishment. It is how we grow and mature, and by it, we are complete and equipped to live the Christian life in this world. The Word of God is the all-sufficient authority and guidebook for life and faith. You take away the Bible, and we have nothing. We've lost it all. Without the Bible, we have no knowledge of God. Without the Bible, we have no knowledge of Christ. We have no gospel. We have no explanation for man's lost condition, and we have no answer for the finality of death. And because Jesus is revealed to us in the Bible, without the Bible, the revealed Christ then becomes simply an imagined Christ that people make up in their own minds, and it is not the Christ of the Scriptures. Without the Word of God, we're in big trouble. Without the Word of God, we have nothing. We, we have no revelation from God. Without it, we don't have the counsel of God. So the point is simply that we are absolutely, totally dependent upon the Word of God. The Word of God informs our worship. Worship begins with our response to divine revelation, to who God is. It's, it's where we are able to gain a great and glorious vision of, vision of the majesty of God and the glory of God. But if little or no time or attention is given to the revealed Word of God, read and then proclaimed, then to what do people respond? What are you responding to? Without the Word of God, worship becomes superficial or, or sentimental at best. And so at the very heart of, of corporate worship is the Word of God. First, the reading of the Word. You know, some of you may wonder why we take time to simply read the Scriptures on, on Sunday mornings. You know, why allow time for reading a passage of Scripture other than the text that is to be preached? Well, that's an honest question. I mean, we read the Word in our worship service because in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul gave these instructions to Timothy, who was a young pastor. And he said... There in that verse, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So we allow time for reading the Scriptures, number one, because pastors are commanded by God to see to it that Scripture is regularly read in the public gathering of the church for corporate worship. I mean, the Word of God is powerful, even when uh, the person reading it isn't giving any explanation. 
Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. You know, Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We allow time for reading the scriptures number two, because making time in our Sunday morning service every week to read scripture without comment makes a statement about the value we place on God's word. I mean, it says that we are eager to hear the word of God, that we desire it. Number three, it acknowledges that the life and growth of this local church depends on the power of God's Word and that we really believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We allow time for the reading of Scriptures, number four, because it acknowledges our own weakness and that we continually need to be reminded of what God said. As one man wrote, the public reading of Scripture in the church gathering says we are, excuse me, willing to listen to God's Word, to sit under it so that we might be instructed, addressed, and evaluated by it. It says we're willing to agree with its presentation of reality and with its estimation and judgment of us. It says we are willing to submit to its verdict and commands without qualification. And so if the regular public reading of the Word says all of this, then what would we be saying if we neglected to do that? When the reading of the Scripture is with clarity, conviction, and power, it sets the Word of God before the people, before us, in a way that demonstrates its authority, and it demands a response. And so at the very heart of our corporate worship is the Word of God, first of all, read. But secondly, the primary and essential element of our worship is the preaching of God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And so at the very heart of our corporate worship is the Word of God. First, the reading of the Word. And then second, the primary essential element of worship is the preaching of God's Word. And the early church set the example for us. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In this verse are four elements of worship that were present when the early church gathered together. And we're not going to go through all four of them, but I want to just mention the first, and it's listed first because it's primary. The first element is the preaching of God's Word, and we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. This speaks of a steadfast, single-minded devotion to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. The center of the church's corporate worship and the backbone of a healthy Christian life and church is the Word of God. And the Word of God is food for the believers, equipping growth and strength. It is our rule for faith and practice. It is our final authority, and, and there's no substitute for it. In fact, I, I read a quote uh, last night. Uh, one man said, church history has repeatedly and, and clearly proven one thing. Once the highest view of Scripture is abandoned, by any theologian, group, denomination, or church, the downhill slide in both its theology and practice is inevitable. The early church continually devoted themselves to God's word as it came from the apostles. You see, these early Christians didn't imagine for one moment that because they had received the Holy Spirit, that he was the only teacher they needed, and so they could just do away with any human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction from the Word of God, and the apostles were responsible to teach them God's Word. And the first thing these Christians desired was further teaching from the apostles. I mean, they coveted this with the whole of their being. And before we go any farther, let's ask ourselves a simple question. I mean, do we desire the apostles' doctrine? In other words, do we really desire the preaching of God's Word? Or is it something we just endure through the church service because what we really want is just to hang out and fellowship and be able to check off the box that we did the church thing on Sunday? I mean, do we really desire, eagerly desire the preaching of God's Word? I mean, why did these people want this teaching? I mean, why did they eagerly gather together to listen to the exposition of truth from the lips of the apostles? And this is very important. It's very important. Because we're living in an age when people are trying to say that we need to scrap preaching and, and teaching and replace it with other things. You know, replace it with things like skits and, and drama and dance. And others would have us replace uh, preaching with dialogue, you know, discussions, questions and answers for about 25 minutes or so, as if that itself could ever lead to anything beneficial. Others would have us replace preaching with, uh, you know, just continual how-to series which have little or nothing to do with the Bible. Still others would have us replace preaching with reviews of the latest Hollywood films, you know, seeing what biblical principles and applications you could possibly draw from them. You think I'm joking? This goes on. It was certainly not like that in the early church. The people devoted themselves. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Why did they want this doctrine? Well, the apostle Peter later wrote to a group of Christians, and this is what he said to them in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 
In other words, wanting to listen to the Word of God is inevitable if men and women are truly born again and have become Christians. That's the natural outcome. Listen, a baby does not understand, but but he has an instinct for milk, doesn't he? I mean, he wants it. And this is proof of the fact that he's a baby and not an adult. He, he, He is alive and wants the mother's milk, and rightly so. And Peter is saying it's exactly the same with the believer. You simply cannot be a Christian and have no desire for the Word of God, for a knowledge of the truth. It's impossible. The people in the early church were devoted to coming together for the preaching of God's Word. They longed for it. And it was like they were afraid of of missing something. And quite honestly, I do not understand some Christian people because they just seem to want the minimum of preaching and teaching. But listen, it's a wonderful thing to be in the house of God together. And it's a wonderful thing to be listening to the preaching of the Word and and the proclamation of the Gospel. Why? Because it's God's Word. It's God's truth. And because the Holy Spirit is here working through His Word in our hearts and lives. And the believers in Acts were taking no chances. And they wanted all that they could get. They were afraid of missing something precious. I mean, this is, this is all instinctive in the Christian. They wanted to understand more and more about this tremendous thing that had happened to them. They didn't want to be held in, in ignorance and darkness any longer. They wanted life, so they, they longed for the teaching of God's Word. Like newborn babes, they, they wanted to grow and to develop. They, they wanted to learn more. They desired the teaching, the, the instruction, the information that the apostles were giving in order that they might grow, but also that they might be able to help others. So they devoted themselves. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And the apostles all preached the same doctrine, every one of them, and they continued to preach it. Well, here in the early part of the book of Acts, in in the first days of the church, what did the apostles teach? The epistles? No. Those hadn't been written yet. But what about the gospels? No, they weren't written yet either. Well, what then did they teach and preach? Well, the Old Testament scriptures, the words of Jesus as they recall them, the the Sermon on the Mount, other truths that they had heard and received from uh, Jesus and the things the Holy Spirit revealed to them. And they fulfilled their role quickly and effectively under God as they, in the power of the Spirit, began to teach the believers all that they knew and all that they had heard and learned from the Lord Jesus. And that is what the apostles taught. And that is what the believers longed to hear more and more. I mean, they, they knew that they had new life, but they said, we need more of it. You know, we're, we're in the world still, and the world and, and the flesh and the devil are powerful, and, and we're weak, so tell us more of this teaching. They wanted to know what it, what it means to be in Christ, and Christ in you, the hope of glory. And they, they wanted to know more about the blessed spirit who, who can change people and give power. They wanted to know about the world that is to come. You know, not this passing evil world, but, but that future world and its pleasures and its joys. 
So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They, they couldn't get enough of it. Does that describe you? You know, if you have new spiritual life, it will manifest itself in this way. You will be hungering and thirsting for more and more of God's Word. It will become the greatest interest in your life. I mean, men and women who have spiritual life in them, the life of God in their souls, are going to be like newborn babies, desiring the pure milk of the Word that they might grow. And if you don't have that desire, it is very, very serious. And you need to determine why that is. The early church eagerly gathered together to hear the word of God preached. Because you see, God designed the church to be a place where his word is proclaimed and explained. And that is the primary element of worship as the church gathers together as the family of God. And that remains true for the church today, and it will re remain true until Christ returns. A commitment to the exposition and application of the Word of God is essential. It is absolutely foundational to the growth and spiritual health of every church and every individual believer. the life and health, and therefore the effectiveness of any local fellowship is primarily and directly related to the place and to the time given to the Word of God as it is humbly and consistently proclaimed week in and week out. And that needs to be said again and again and again because we live in a day where in more and more places less and less time is devoted to the preaching of God's Word. But you see, the great test of any fellowship is not its facility, its programs, its youth ministry, or even its music, but rather its commitment to the preaching of God's Word. But today, so many believers, uh, professed believers, seem to be bored with the Word of God. They'd rather wander the halls and drink coffee and, and talk than sit and listen to the preaching. You know, so many professed believers are bored with the Word of God. It's not enough for them. You know, they, they, they would rather take up a cause. You know, they want to they organize. Take up a cause, organize, take to the streets. We want to be fighters of social injustice and abortion and, and racism and poverty and climate change, etc., etc. It's not that those aren't real issues. But we need to remember that from the very beginning, the church and Christian people have been involved in acts and works of mercy, but that is not the primary calling of the church. But believers as individuals can and should be involved in good works outside the church, but never to the neglect of the gospel, but rather as an opportunity first and foremost to share the gospel. You don't feed someone just to be feeding them. You want to share the gospel with them and feed them. The 
calling of the church is to worship God and, and through God-focused worship to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's so that believers can then go out into the community where God has placed them and be light and salt, be a godly influence for the glory of God. But you see, that's much harder than carrying a sign. That's much harder than taking up a cause because it's costly. The gospel is an offense. But it's the power of God to salvation, isn't it? God designed the church to be a place where his word is proclaimed and explained week in and week out. And the priority of preaching God's word is mandated throughout the pastoral epistles. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy as to the authority of the church. 1 Timothy 4, 11-13, he said to Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, and to teaching. And then we could turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul, at the end of his life, said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is, is the judge, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they're going to go around from place to place until they find someone who is going to tell them not the truth, but what it is they want to hear. And loved ones, that time is here. We're living smack dab in the middle of it. But the early church was committed to the preaching of God's word. It was the priority of the early church when they gathered for corporate worship. And that's to be the priority in the church's worship today. And we are committed to a particular type of preaching. Expository or expositional. Because we firmly believe this is the biblical model. And I want to take just a few moments to explain what expository preaching is. And probably the best way to, to do so is to begin by telling you what expository preaching is not. It is not a running, a running commentary, just going from word to word and verse to verse with a few comments. That is not expositional teaching. It's not rambling comments and offhand remarks uh, about a passage sprinkled with some stories and humor. It's not a mass of disconnected suggestions and inferences based on the surface meaning of a passage. It's not a bunch of word meanings and, and quotations. Expositional preaching is not a word study. It's not a Sunday school type discussion. It is not linking together and reading Bible verses that speak of a common theme, failing to handle any of them in a thorough, in-depth manner. 
It is not a devotional or, or prayer meeting talk. You know, it's not uh, uh, suggestions, personal reactions, and feelings combined in an inspirational talk. Now, sometimes people confuse expositional preaching with reading a verse and then preaching on a topic that is uh, loosely, very loosely related to that verse, if it's related at all. You see, when a preacher exhorts a congregation on the topic of his choosing, you know, using biblical text only to back up his point, he'll never preach no than what he will never preach more than what he already knows. And that's not good. Because the congregation then will only learn what the preacher already knows, and the church will slowly be conformed to the mind of the pastor rather than the mind of God. Expositional preaching requires more than that. Well, what then is expository preaching? Now, I've got to stop for just a moment. Every time I say expository preaching, I'm reminded years ago, somebody told me, yeah, I invited this person to, to come to church because we do suppository preaching. <laughs> Not the kind of preaching we do here. <laughs> it's expository preaching. <laughs> what is expository preaching? Expository preaching requires careful attention to the context of a passage. Context is everything. If you write out the word context, take out the word, take the if you take the text out of context, what do you end up with? A con. And that's what happens when a pastor takes a text out of context. A con. So expository preaching requires careful attention to the content of a passage because the aim of expository preaching is to make the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. So what we're saying is, in expository preaching, the message of the sermon must coincide with the theme or the message of the text. In other words, the point of the passage is supposed to be the point of the message. According to Webster, an exposition is a discourse to convey information or explain what is difficult to understand. And as one man said, applying this idea to preaching requires that an expositor be one who explains the Scripture by laying open the text to public view in order to set forth its meaning, explain what is difficult to understand, and make appropriate application. And so in other words, expository preaching exposes God's Word. It takes a particular passage, and it could be one verse, it could be a number of verses, it could be a chapter or perhaps even a number of chapters. But whatever the text is, expositional preaching takes the text in its context, explains it in its context, and then applies the meaning of it to the life of the congregation. And the preacher opens the word and unfolds it for the people of God. Expository preaching is the kind of preaching most geared to get at what God says to his people as well as to those who are not his people. 
We see an example of expository preaching in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, where we read, Then they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. In other words, they explained it so that the people understood the reading. Another example of expository preaching would be Jesus expounding Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 in the synagogue there in Luke 4. Later, Jesus gave what would be called a thematic exposition of himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus there in Luke 24, verse 27. We read, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 35, Philip expounded Isaiah 53, 7 to 8 for the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. Stephen preached a historical, biographical, expository sermon to the Jews before they stoned him to death in Acts 7. And we see the spirit of expository preaching in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, where Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Paul systematically declared the whole counsel, the scriptures, to them. So clearly expository preaching is, is the example given us in scripture. There are other types of preaching. Topical preaching, which is what I'm doing this morning. There's topical preaching, there's biographical preaching, and and these other types of preaching are helpful on occasion. But the regular diet of the church should be, uh, or should consist of the exposition, the explanation and application of particular portions of God's Word. And you know, we usually take a book of the Bible and go through it. That has been uh, the, the, the mainstay of this church from the very beginning. There are times when I've stopped and done uh, other me- messages like I have uh, done this year in between books. But if you'll look back at all of those messages, they were an exposition of a particular passage of Scripture. This one this morning is topical. But the regular diet of the church should consist of Bible exposition. Why? for reasons I've already mentioned or alluded to. God's Word gives life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The word, so the Word of God brings life. It reveals Christ to us. It creates faith in us. The Word of God convicts. The Word of God makes us grow. God uses His Word to sanctify His people and to make them more like Himself. It builds us up and, and preserves us. It keeps us from sin. God's Word is a light and a lamp to give us guidance and direction as it keeps molding and shaping us into the image of God. So we need the Word of God. We need the Word of God to be saved, but we also need it to continually challenge and shape us and guide us and direct us and and enable us to grow. Spiritual growth takes place uh, as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And then God is, of course, sanctifying us through all the experience that we encounter, trials, tribulation, trouble, all of those. He's working all of those things for our good and His glory. They all contribute to the testing of our faith and, and the growing of our faith. But we can't do without the Word of God. 
And expository preaching is the best way to bring God's word to God's people. And a commitment to expositional preaching is really a commitment to God's word. I mean, listen, if if all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is, and if men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they did, and if every word of God proves true, then shouldn't the preacher be concerned to preach God's message, God's word, as it's given? I mean, the the preacher must consider how best to be faithful to the following commands. 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul, remember, speaking to Timothy, a pastor, instructing him on how things are to work in the church. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And these verses make clear that the Bible is the subject matter for preaching, but, but don't these verses also suggest an approach to preaching? 2 Timothy 2.15, for example, the worker who is unashamed is the one who rightly divides the word of truth. And certainly, rightly dividing the word implies more than forming a sermon by selecting random verses based on, you know, your own preconceived ideas. What about 2 Timothy 3.16 to 4.2, which begins with a statement about all Scripture and climaxes with a charge to preach it? I mean, surely the all is meant to have some bearing on preaching, implying not merely that the preacher is to use the Bible in preaching, but that he is to systematically preach the Bible. All of it. And if you've been with this church from the very beginning, you've gone from Genesis uh, all the way almost through uh, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And we only have, I think, four books, four or five books left in the New Testament. So what approach to preaching is most likely to honor these commands in First and Second Timothy that we just read? Well, the approach that is driven by the biblical message rather than by the human messenger. The approach that is not confined to the boundaries of the preacher's creative limitations, but that expands to include all of God's revelation, all of God's word, the full counsel of God. You see, the call for biblical faithfulness in preaching is best answered by expository preaching. One man said this about expository preaching. He said, it expresses exactly the will of the righteous sovereign, and it allows God to speak, not man. Expository preaching, he said, retains the thoughts of the Spirit, brings the preacher into direct into direct and continual contact with the mind of the Holy Spirit who authored Scripture. Expository preaching frees the preacher to proclaim all the revelation of God, producing a ministry of wholeness and integrity. Expository preaching promotes biblical literacy, yielding rich knowledge of redemptive truths. 
Expository preaching carries ultimate divine authority, rendering the very voice of God. And let me just add something here. If preachers preach their own word, the congregation may listen politely, but has every right to disregard the sermon as just another person's opinion. Because if he's just preaching out of his own mind, his own ideas, his own word, that's all it is, his opinion. And accordingly, if preachers want to preach with divine authority, then they must submit themselves, their thoughts, and their opinions to the Scriptures and proclaim the Word of God. See, preaching with authority is synonymous with true expository preaching. And lastly, this man wrote, expository preaching transforms the preacher, leading to transformed congregations. That's exactly right. Because again, it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and the lives of the people of God. As you can tell, I believe in expository preaching. And that is what the leadership of this church is committed to. Because we believe it is a biblical mandate that doesn't fluctuate with the culture or with uh, the latest fads and trends, with uh, the expectations of people or, or with times and seasons. Expository preaching is the best way to preach the Bible. If every word of God is pure, every word of God is true, then every word needs to be dealt with, right? And expository preaching is the only way you actually come to grips with every word in the Scriptures. Secondly, expository preaching familiarizes people with the Scripture itself. Instead of just giving them a, a speech as, as true and as reflective of biblical teaching as that speech may be. But with expository preaching, people become familiar with the Scriptures. And then they can go back to the passages that they've been taught and they can be reminded by the text itself of what it means. And so you can give people the Word of God in a way that, that has a long-term impact because it makes them familiar with the Scriptures. And thirdly, it makes the authority unmistakable. And that authority is the Scriptures. And that's very clear, no matter how powerful or gifted the preacher might be. In consistent expository preaching, the people always know that what the always know what the authority is. It's the word of God. That's the authority. That's the power. It's not about the sermon. It's not about personal viewpoints and insights. It's about relentlessly affirming the true authority of Scripture, which is the most critical thing that anybody can ever learn. It's always about what does the Word of God say? Not what do I think or what do I feel, but what does the Word of God say? And that makes it truly authoritative because the word it's the Word from God. And no other way of preaching does this. Preachers are not, are, are not commanded simply to go and preach. They are to go and preach the Word. That's what preachers are commanded to preach, and I don't understand men who don't preach the Word. 
They would do a greater service to the body of Christ if they got out of the pulpit. Because those who teach are going to receive a stricter judgment. That's why James says, let not many of you become teachers. If you're not going to preach the word of God, if you're not going to give the people the full counsel of God, get out of the pulpit. Go sell cars or something. Do anything other than stand in the pulpit. Preachers are commanded to preach the word. They're commanded specifically to go and preach the word. That's what we're we're commanded to preach. It can't be any clearer. I mean, I preach expositionally because it's a biblical mandate. It's the way the word of God is to be handled and taught. And if we get the priority of the word established, if we get the priority of the word established, then we have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life and worship and growing spiritual health. I didn't say growing numbers. I said growing spiritual health. The numbers are not up to the pastor. The pastor is to see that the people are fed He's to feed the flock of God, the word of God, so that they will grow and mature spiritually. The numbers, that's God's department. And I remember time and time and time and time again at pastor's conferences in the past, many years ago, hearing Pastor Chuck say, look, whatever you do, don't compromise on the word to fill a building. Don't compromise on on preaching the word uh, to, to, to gather a crowd to fill the building. He said, because a crowd is not a church. A crowd is not a church. Well, we're, to, we're to feed the flock of God, the word of God, and not compromise. No matter what. So if we have the the priority of the word established, we have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life and worship and growing spiritual health. That is virtually assured because God works by his Holy Spirit through his word in the lives of his people. And I've said that a number of times throughout the message up to this point. I'll probably say it again because it's important for us to remember God works through his word, by his Holy Spirit, through his word in the lives of his people. It's the preaching of God's word that, that, that unleashes the power of God on the people of God. Because God's power for building his people is in his word. I mean, some people think that listening to God's word preached is not really worship. Well, that's first of all because they don't understand what worship is. But the reading of Scripture and the exposition of Scripture are acts of worship. They are offerings given to God in reverence and devotion. So let me say it again. The, the, The preaching of God's Word is the most important element of our worship. It's the apex of worship. And today, in an age that seeks to simplify everything, 
Now, songs, sermons, the service, etc. The clear and, and powerful proclamation of the Word of God and sound biblical doctrine uh, will give spiritual depth to worship and demonstrate the vitality of the faith in the lives of the worshipers. And without it, without the Word of God, one man said, worship becomes empty ritual and the faith itself obscure. The starting point of true biblical worship must be the object of worship, that is the Lord God himself. Because the greater our appreciation and apprehension of the majesty and glory of God, the greater our worship. And for worship to be as glorious as it should be, it must be inspired by a vision of God that is great and glorious. And so let me ask you once again, where is it that the object of our worship, God himself, is revealed to us? You know, where is it that we get a glimpse of God that is so great and glorious that it inspires and transforms our worship? Where? Answer, God's word. It's where he reveals himself. I mean, certainly God reveals himself to us through creation, through what's called general revelation. But that's just enough to know that there is a God and he should be worshipped as God. If we want an intimate revelation of who God is, that's found in his word. So let me ask you something. Do you have and maintain an attitude of worship when the word of God is read and when it's preached? Do you engage your heart as well as your mind as we worship the Lord in this way? Or are you always looking at your watch or texting, playing with your phone? When the word of God is preached, are you following along? Are you agreeing? Are you asking the Lord to apply his word that is being taught to your own heart and life? Word of God is the most important element of true biblical worship. Certainly there are other elements of biblical worship that are important. There are fellowship, prayer, communion, baptism, singing, giving, serving. These are all important aspects of our worship. But when the church gathers together for corporate worship, our priority is to worship God, and the most important element of corporate worship is the preaching of God's word. So you see, God's plan, his purpose for the church is really very simple. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, preach the word. Why? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Preach the Word. 
Why? As Paul said in Ephesians 4, so that we as believers can be equipped for service, that we might come to maturity, so that we're no longer children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, so that we can grow into the very likenesses of Jesus Christ, so that each member can do his or her own part, so the body can grow and be built up in love. God's plan is very simple, and we cannot improve upon it, and we dare not depart from it. We have to stick to it no matter what. You see, loved ones, when the church follows God's plan, when the Word of God is at the very center of our worship, It accomplishes the ultimate purpose for the church and each member of it, and that is to bring praise and glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we started this church, when we planted this church, we did so with the commitment to faithfully preach God's word in season and out. And that is why at the very beginning we chose Colossians 1.28 as the theme for this ministry, this church and this ministry. It's on our bulletin, has been from day one. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, or him we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then as Paul said in the next verse, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so here we are now, a little over 26 years later, and that commitment has not changed. Oh, plenty of people have come and plenty of people have gone because they changed their views, their, their wants and desires in a church, their beliefs or their thoughts and opinions as to how things ought to be done. But this church hasn't changed in, in its mission and its goal and its vision and its commitment. We haven't changed as far as our purpose because we believe it's God's stated purpose for the church. So we're doing what we've always done. And when you come here on Sunday morning, what you see is what you get. This is what we do, whether it's Sunday morning or, or Wednesday night. We're doing what we've always done, what we've set out to do, and hopefully we're growing and we're improving, we're we're getting better at it. But we're continuing the best we can by the, the grace and mercy of God to follow his plan for his church, because it's his church. And so if you want to know what, what our vision is, in other words, if you, if you want to know what this church and ministry is all about, you know, you want to know what goes on here week after week, you know, week in, week out. Well, look, we gather here for one purpose. We have one agenda, and that's to worship God. And again, where is it that the object of our worship, God himself, is revealed? His word. His word. It's in his word that we get a glimpse of God that is so great and glorious that it inspires and transforms our worship. And that is why we have an unwavering commitment to the expositional teaching and preaching of God's Word at every level, from the adults in the sanctuary all the way down to the two- and three-year-olds, because our children need the Word of God just like we do. 
And the Word of God is the most important priority in every area of ministry. And look, I understand that what we do here is not popular. In fact, it's considered uh, in the church world today as being very outdated and old-fashioned. You know, we're, we're supposed to keep up with the culture. You know, pastor is supposed to be hip. Well, I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, I see these guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s trying to dress like college guys with their tennis shoes and their skinny jeans and their V-neck shirts and sweaters with their pilot's glasses. It's like, come on, for crying out loud, what's wrong with you? Standing behind their plexiglass pulpit, if they have a pulpit at all, And the whole thing is for the pastor to be hip because he has to be hip. He wants to relate to the culture. The problem uh, with the pastor being hip is that it usually means he's compromising the Word of God in some way or another because it's all about the pastor and it's all about the numbers. So I know what we do isn't popular. But we're not looking for popularity. That doesn't mean I don't want the church to grow. But we never set out to have a mega church. We just wanted to faithfully feed the flock of God. To see to it that the flock at Calvary Chapel was the best fed flock in town. And I'm not patting myself on the back or this church on the back. And if you think that, first of all, you don't know me, you don't know this church, uh, and I'm going to chalk it up to that. But if you do know me, you know this church, and, and you still think that, then you're a very small person just looking for something to be critical of. Because that's not what we're about. We set out to do this from the very beginning because that's the mandate from Scripture. It's what God has called us to do. To faithfully feed the flock of God and to feed them His Word. So we're not looking for popularity. We're not looking to please men. Oh my goodness. You know, we're, we're, we're looking to please God. As Paul said in Galatians 1, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And that's true. And then he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. So I'm not looking for a slap on the back and uh, the approval of men. Rather, I am looking forward to hearing one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want to be able to say with all honesty at the end of my life and ministry as Paul did, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want to be able to say with all sincerity, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all 
who have loved his appearing. See, our aim here at, at Calvary Chapel is to build a community of believers who are grounded in God's word, who are doctrinally sound, genuinely loving, abounding in good works, so that we may live radical, biblically authentic lives in our homes, in our church, in our community, so that we can have an impact on this godless culture for the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God help us. May God help us to always be faithful, to continue in his word, to rightly divide the word, and to preach the word in season and out for the sole purpose that we might bring praise and glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.